Hello, everyone, and welcome to this audio-only episode of The Colin and Samir Show. Audio-only, but it's a Monday, Colin. What's the deal? The reason we're doing that is because our episode this week on YouTube is extremely visual, so we felt like it wouldn't make sense for the audio feed. Our episode on YouTube is us reviewing creator merch. It's part of a larger series that we do where we take merch that creators make and deem some of them winners and some of them losers. So it should be up on the channel. If it's not up today, it'll be up this week, but check it out. Let us know what you think. But we wanted to try this format on audio this week. The format is three, two, one. So we will start with three stories from the creator economy, two questions that we got from creators that we'll answer and then end with one creator to watch. All right. If you're new here, I'm Samir. I'm Colin. And we are Colin and Samir. (laughs) Collectively. Uh, We've been on YouTube for the past 10 years. And today we talk about the world of creators and how people are building businesses online. All right. Three, two, one. Let's get into it. The first of our three stories is that the D'Amelios are launching a VC fund. They're planning on raising up to $25 million. So their fund is called 444 Capital, and this is kind of part of a larger trend right now where we're seeing creators become investors. Creators like Cody Ko, uh, who has dumb money capital. I mean, ourselves, we've been investing. We've been doing some angel investing. This happens a lot in the celebrity world, right? Like Ashton Kutcher has become a big investor. And I think it's really interesting to start to look at the world of creators picking companies that they want to invest in. Here's what I like. I think creators as curators is a big trend we're going to see. People who know about what works on the internet, what audiences connect with. I think creators have a really good eye for what's going to work and why it's going to work. So I think they're actually really valuable investors. Also, creators are often paid on a short-term advertising basis, but they're generating long-term value. Mm -hmm. A lot of these videos are being watched, you know, over the course of a year and they're changing the outcomes for some of these new businesses that they're promoting. So they, in my opinion, should be looking to generate these types of investor type relationships where they can benefit as well from the long-term growth that the companies that they're promoting will see. I totally agree with that. I think that creators who are working with brands over long periods of time are helping build the enterprise value of that brand. What a lot of people don't realize from a creator perspective is that when you do one brand deal, especially on YouTube, the brand lives in that video forever. Like just as an example, in our Mr. Beast interview, we have a brand partnership with Jelly Smack, who's a, who's a big brand partner of ours. That video in the first week did like 800,000 views. Today, it's closing in on 10 million. And that interview is gonna live on YouTube for as long as YouTube exists and as long as our channel exists. And that'll continue. That might get 20 million views over a long period of time. And that Jelly Smack ad is embedded in that. So that has incredible value there. So I think that creators becoming investors offers this opportunity for them to be connected to that long-term enterprise value. But I think that brings up a question around the marketing relationship when a creator starts investing. They aren't in a marketing partnership, they're investing. So if they invest in a company, the question is, does the company expect them to start marketing them, not work with the competitors? And I think that's why this is not called the D'Amelio Fund. This is called the 444 Capital Fund. Yeah, and I think it does need to be very clear between the companies and the creators what the exchange is. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of creator investors who are striking deals where the promotion is actually part of the Mm -hmm. investment deal. 
right? Yeah. And so I just think it's important to understand what the actual exchange is. And I think it is often in the best interest of these companies to have the creators be investors and not just partnered on an advertising basis, because the hope would be that the creator is more incentivized mm-hmm. to talk about it outside of the bounds of just when they are contractually supposed to, like you would see in an advertising deal. So the D'Amelios are focusing on women and minority-led startups. Uh, They're not really focusing on creator economy businesses. And the fund is planning to invest about $1 million per deal and make 20 deals this year. That's that's pretty significant, like a million dollars per deal. That's pretty significant. I think a lot of people might be thinking right now as we're talking about creators becoming investors, like, well, why don't you just invest in your own company? Why don't you just make your own company? But the challenge there is that if you want to continue being a significant creator, you have to be heads down focused on creating. You have to be excellent at the craft of creating content, engaging an audience, building your community. And we're experiencing this right now. That leaves you very bandwidth strapped. So with the capital you do have, I think it makes sense to invest in other companies that are relevant that you can provide value to. Also, for creators like us, you know, we have more costs involved to our production because we do have a team. Mm -hmm. That's the way we operate. But the D'Amelios, they really don't have much overhead and they have massive distribution. So they're at this point in their career where they have a lot of cash. Well, they they have a pretty big mansion here in LA, Colin. They got to have some overhead there. But yeah, it's disproportionate. They have a lot of cash. It's totally disproportionate. They have an unbelievable amount of cash. And so they're they're also raising money for this fund. Yeah. Like other people will put cash into this fund for them to invest. But what I'm saying really is just that they're at a point where they have to turn cash into more cash. They're not just going to let some of this cash sit there. Like they have this Mm -hmm. opportunity where they are this sort of beacon of light. They've attracted all of this attention and all of this money. They've got to do something with it. I think one of the biggest questions that I ask and and when I look at this is how much of all of this is about de-risking yourself as a creator. When you think about the D'Amelios, I mean- Three years ago, we didn't know the name, the D'Amelios. Now they're, you know, incredibly hot. There must be some element of them thinking, we should we should strike while the iron's hot, make investments while we can, use our name while we can. And of course, the hope is that they become a, a you know, a long-term name, brand name in entertainment that we know for maybe the rest of our lives. But there is an opportunity that that's not the case. And so- using the moment that they have right now to make long-term bets is, it makes sense. I mean, the iron is hot and they're definitely striking. Is that the right way to say that? The iron is hot and they're striking? I have no idea. I say a lot of things that are just common phrases that I don't know what they mean. Well, yeah, where's that from? I think it's from ironing. But if you iron, the iron's hot, it's just time to iron. That's striking though. That's striking. Like, I don't think you're striking someone. You're striking the shirt. You're striking the but shirt. That even or sounds pants too aggressive because you're really just gliding the iron across the board. I wouldn't call that a strike. You know, this, this last weekend I went to a wedding and I had to iron my shirt and I realized I had no idea how to iron a shirt. Like I don't know the right and one wrong move with an iron, the shirt's messed up because now you ironed a new crease into the shirt. High stakes. High stakes. Speaking of steak, that brings us to our second story. Mythical launching a new digital food publication. Mythical being the media company started by Rhett and Link, two legendary YouTube creators who've been around for a long time. 
I don't know how these guys do so much. They are so impressive to me. We got to talk to them um, uh, over Zoom and it was such a lovely conversation. They're such great guys and they just do so much. So Mythical launched a food publication called Sporked. Uh, It's led by two food journalism vets and it's essentially, it's a website and it has product reviews, rankings, essays, opinion pieces. And the thing that's really cool about this is Rhett and Link's focus on food content. It's really exploded. They have a show called Good Mythical Morning. It comes out every day. From my recollection, it's been coming out for the last 10 years. I think it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday now. Okay. I don't think it's every day, but their network, the Mythical Network, has multiple pieces of content coming out every single day, which is unbelievable. But their food content and their food reviews specifically are what have really taken off and grown their audience on YouTube And if you look at Sporked on the website right now, that's a lot of what this is. It's food reviews. It even says where tastes are tested. So this is taking all of that heat and excitement from the food reviews that they have on YouTube and giving it its own space to exist on the website. What I really like is how many different things Rhett and Link have tried. If you go back and just look at all the types of things that they were doing, creating, and then landing on this format of food and going all in. I love it. I think it's like very mass appeal. Everyone can connect to the fast food reviews they do. And now they're saying similar to what we've done with the published press and said, hey, let's let's take our format. Let's put it into a written format. Let's hire a team around that and let's scale that value prop that we're providing to the audience. It's the same thing that's happening here saying Rent and Link, how long are they going to do the food reviews or like, how long is that going to work? How can we do more of that? There's all these questions as a creator, especially if you're, you're a hot creator, then there's a lot of demand from an advertising perspective. There's a lot of demand from an audience perspective and you're just, you're written link. Like you, you're doing a lot of stuff. You can't make more. So how do I now take that into a scalable format like writing and put it on a website? That's again, it's not so different from what we were talking about with the D'Amelio fund you're essentially taking your audience and you're funneling them and putting them in somewhere else that can have long-term life beyond you creating. So here's an example of an article on the website written by Jordan Myrick. Okay. The definitive list of chocolate cereals you should be buying. All right. Perfect for you, Samir. Okay. Count Chocula, Oreo O's, Chocolate Cheerios, Reese's Puffs, Cocoa Puffs, Annie's Homegrown Cocoa Bunnies, and Cocoa Pebbles. Pick and choose. Is that, is that... Uh, top to bottom, Cocoa Pebbles is absolutely not one of one there. It's not the best of the best, how how they have it listed there. Um, Cocoa Puffs is not only best crunch, but it should be number one across the board. Cocoa Puffs was my childhood. I will add to that, that one of the best things about Cocoa Puffs, I don't know if you remember this, you used to be able to fold out the back Mm -hmm. and it would make this really cool track that the Cocoa Puffs could actually go down Mm. until it landed in your bowl. Oh, very exciting. Yeah, I don't really remember that. I think I got like a a spoon that was in the cereal box that was really cool. But do you remember before school eating cereal and reading the back of a cereal box? Like they always had like cool stuff on the Mm -hmm. back. Yeah. That like what cool stimulation that was rather than, you know, just firing off a hundred TikToks right when you wake up in the morning. Do you do that ever? No. Okay. Got it. I am going to give the award Mm. for best cereal milk after you eat the cereal to cocoa pebbles. Disagree. All right. That's cinnamon toast crunch. And that's, well, that's, that's not a different category. Debate. That's a different yeah. category. It's not a different category, but you just said best cereal milk. All right. So here's the thing. Mythical 
from Retinlink, it's it's really growing itself into being one of the largest media companies. And we talk a lot about the future of the creator economy is these single or double person media companies. Mythical is the best example of that. They're started by creators. They're able to now go from just Retinlink to this media empire where they have multiple formats, multiple brands, and are able to actually build a network or a media company that looks a lot like some of the biggest media companies in the world. This feels a lot like BuzzFeed, right? But the difference mm-hmm. is it's started by Rhett and Link, two creators who understand what it's like to be in that cycle, be in that grind of creating content every single day. And something that you say a lot, which I really like, is that creators are flipping the model of traditional business where they're actually starting with these MVPs of content, finding audience, and then building product around that audience. Whereas a lot of companies in the past started with product and then tried to find audience. I mean, a lot of companies still start with product and services. Mm -hmm. Most people who think I want to start a company think I need to come up with a product or a service to sell. Creators totally flip that on their head and just say, well, let me find an audience first, know them very intimately, and then figure out what they want, what they need. All right, let's get to our third story here. This story was going around LinkedIn, which by the way, I'm a new LinkedIn creator. I'm starting to try and become a LinkedIn influencer. I I would say you are a LinkedIn influencer. I'm I'm trying. You know, I I put out a post that I was happy with, but in classic me fashion, there was a typo in it. Mm. And I tried to, I I like tried my best to read it a couple times to make sure, but I'm a, I'm just a typo machine. Well, now we're going pretty long on LinkedIn, Okay, but I would say my LinkedIn, (laughs) if you were to arrive there right now has crickets and dust. It's like tumbleweeds. It's tumbleweeds. It's tumbleweeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even know yeah, if it yeah. says you I get work tagged at Colin in some Samir. stuff. Uh, yeah, but I think yours probably still says you work at Lacrosse Network or something. No, I get tagged in things and there's a lot yeah. of notifications. But one day, okay. I'll, I'll take my talents to LinkedIn. All right. Well, enough about LinkedIn. We're talking about another platform, YouTube. A leaked document from YouTube showed that they have major plans to get into podcasting. I love a good leaked document. Love a good leaked doc. Yeah, that's just so exciting. So YouTube is getting more serious about podcasting. They hired an executive to lead their podcast business, and they recently started giving podcasters cash to film their shows. Also, according to this document, it looks like Google's going to figure out a new way to expand their advertising business with podcasting. And if you think about some of the biggest deals in podcasting over the last three years, just Mm. think about Joe Rogan going to Spotify and taking all of his long form videos away from YouTube. I mean, Alex Cooper also from Call Her Daddy started as a YouTuber. Mm -hmm. Logan Paul with Impulsive, David Dobrik with Views, like YouTube creators, Emma Chamberlain with Anything Goes, YouTube creators are becoming podcasters and there's no way to really natively do it on YouTube. Now that said, we do it on YouTube, but it's a completely different experience than what you're all experiencing right now. It's just not as easy to listen to on YouTube. And so that's where it looks like in the future We're going to see a dedicated podcast page on YouTube, a way for podcasters to pull their RSS feeds directly into YouTube. Mm -hmm. And what I would imagine also is coming is an easier way to listen to the videos. Right now, the only way you can do that is by paying for a premium subscription. They really get you with that. They know what what matters because I listen to Impulsive, Logan Paul's podcast, and I put it on YouTube because sometimes I want to see the reactions and whatnot. But like if your phone shuts off, you you can't keep listening. And it's like, come on, YouTube, you know, but they they know they make you pay for it. Now, I think the question is, is there a YouTube podcast app that rolls out? Maybe like YouTube TV, YouTube podcasts, uh, or is it all through Google Play? I I think it's really interesting to or Google podcasts. I think it's, it's really interesting to see what happens. The two things I like about it 
Um, maybe actually I'll go three things. Okay. I like three things about it. All right. One, the biggest problem in podcasting, discoverability. YouTube is a search engine. If they can help podcasters get discovered, they'll pull a ton of podcasters to YouTube. Mm-hmm. Two, they are the most developed revenue share model on social. Spotify is rolling out ways to do dynamic ad insertion. And, you know, with Anchor, you can have ads that play. But YouTube's really developed when it comes to advertising. And they already have big advertisers willing to pay. Did I say three? You yeah, said three. three so okay. hit me with The three. third one is metrics. Google Analytics, YouTube Analytics are amazing. We get to learn about click-through rates. We get to learn about audience retention. Podcasting is still kind of in the old age when it comes to analytics. You can't really make that many decisions based on analytics when it comes to podcasting. Overall, I'm in. We're a YouTube podcast. I think if YouTube goes longer into podcasting, love to be a part of it. For me, it's all about discoverability. Podcasts are so hard to get off the ground. Only the top percent of podcasts really generate significant revenue, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's so hard to launch a successful podcast. But with YouTube, you talk about the right thing. It's searchable. You can actually get discovered. All right. Now, two questions from the audience. Now, real quick, if you do subscribe to our newsletter, The Publish Press, there is a uh, link at the bottom where you can click on it and submit a question. It's called Creator Support, and we answer one of those questions every Sunday, and we're going to answer two of them right now. One more thing I want to run your way. Okay. Related to podcasts. Talk to me. Let's say their podcast app you have to pay for, similar to Spotify. Okay. One, would you pay for it? Yes. Same. But what I would love as a creator is if YouTube in the back end gave me an option to let my AdSense revenue pay for the subscription for the podcast app for let's say YouTube TV, just bake it in. I think that's probably just going into like a Google wallet. Like your AdSense revenue goes into a wallet and you have credit and you can use it from there. Like I, that's, but make it you're, easy. You're making it confusing. No, right? make it easy no. for a creator. Check a box. You got YouTube TV. Take it out of my AdSense. Uh, so you're, you're adding a lot of nuance there, man. I don't know. Is I don't that? like that. I don't like that. Don't I think like it that? should go into like a central Google wallet and then maybe you can pay it out. That's from probably there. how logistically they would yeah, do it, yeah, but I think I it would be a nice feature. Mm, Help not, onboard us creators to your other products. It uh, feels confusing to me. Uh, I think that's really wrong. Uh, I, don't, I, I think don't if like you're it. a creator, it's easy. You see it in the back end. Like hey, it. you want it? Here you go. Maybe there's a discounted price because you're part of our partner program. You help us make money. I like it. I don't like it. All right. All right. Two questions from our listeners slash readers, because a lot of these come from the published press. If you subscribe to our newsletter at the bottom of the newsletter, you can click a link, ask us a question. We answer those on Sundays in the published press. We're also going to answer two right now. Question number one, how do you guys make changes to your content after looking at analytics? Is that something that you do? Um, yeah, we do. I mean, we primarily change, like if a, if a piece of content is already out, the thing we look at is click-through rate. And we're looking at if we want to change the thumbnail. We got called out big time across Twitter last week. Just so many people posting the five different thumbnails we, we used for our Binging with Babish episode. But we're gauging based on click-through rate. And we're thinking about it from a long-term perspective of saying, over the next three months, what's the most clickable thumbnail? And if the one we pick when it first goes out isn't right, then we're going to change and, and explore. And click-through rate is really the only thing that we can have an impact on once the video is out. That's right. We also look at retention. So how far do people make it through the videos? But our opportunity to fix that is going to be in the next video. So we can understand if there's a dull moment because we'll see the retention graph sort of lower. And we can go click on that moment, see that we maybe dragged, we gave too much context, and then in the next video make a change and 
have things run a little bit quicker, be a little more entertaining. But once the video's out, nothing we can do. Click-through rate is all we got. I would say when you're first starting out and you're trying to figure out your format, just post. And then over time, once you figure out that format, then start to look at the analytics and start to gauge. But don't get too caught up in it when you first start out. Just post, post, post. I would say post something sustainable. Yeah. Find a process that, you know, if you put something out, it doesn't work. You didn't kill yourself to make that video. Just find a way to get things out in a sustainable way. The next question, for a smaller creator, is quality or quantity more important? I would say that's that's interesting because I think right now there's a theme on YouTube of people taking a little bit more time with their episodes. You think about the biggest YouTube creator, Mr. Beast, and he's posting like once every six weeks, maybe if that, sometimes once every two months. Now, granted, that's a, that's a unique situation because of how big he is. I would say in the beginning, you want to focus on quantity because you need to find your voice. You need to find what you like to make. You need to find what's going to be sustainable. Then once you find that format, I think figuring out how to have that come out at the highest quality, that's important. Yeah. Especially if you're a smaller creator. I totally agree with you there. You got to find a way to just get things out. I would start on TikTok or Reels or YouTube Shorts because though that is the lowest barrier to entry, you can get a quality video out every single day and see what's actually resonating with different audiences. Then from there, maybe take it to a longer form video that you put a lot of time and energy into. I know we said two questions, but there's one that's just too good of a layup, so I'm going to ask it. What do you read to always stay up to date on the creator economy? The published press, period. Next question. All right. <laughs> Last thing we have for you guys today, one creator to watch. Colin? This is a sketch comedy group on TikTok called Staple View. It's basically Saturday Night Live reimagined on TikTok. It's led by a guy named Sam Gray, who was formerly a talent manager and producer at Broadway Video, a studio that was founded by Lorne Michaels, mm. who led SNL. I think what we're seeing across the internet right now is legacy traditional formats reimagined for the modern era. I mean, Mr. Beast recreated Survivor. Yeah. Emma Chamberlain at any given time feels like an episode of Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. The Pat McAfee show, one of the biggest sports talk shows ever, but it's on YouTube. Traditionally, what we see often are comedians who start on social and end up on SNL. Please Don't Destroy is currently on SNL and they got their start on TikTok. This kind of flips that on its head and says, let's take SNL and recreate it on TikTok. That's what I think is really interesting. So this is SNL for the modern era. It's playing out on TikTok. It's short form comedy. They also do a live show on TikTok. That's like legit produced. I think that's really interesting. The question of whether it will work or not, I don't know. From looking at their TikTok page, it seems like the clips that perform really well are the ones where they sort of social hack and talk about a big musical artist or a mm -hmm. big actor, someone with a built-in following that they then layer on an extra layer of parody or, or humor, similar to when an actual clip from SNL goes viral the next day. Most people don't stay up to watch SNL. It's the clips that really take off. Oh, yeah, off. it's all the clips. Yeah, I haven't watched an episode of SNL in ages. It also kind of feels like all that. That's kind of more our era. Well, all that, know? which was on Nickelodeon. Was SNL. Was for, SNL. Yeah, okay. It was re SNL reimagined for Nickelodeon. Yeah, that so, was millennial SNL. Staple View is Gen Z SNL. So Sam Gray talks about why TikTok is the right platform for the show. And he said, I feel like it's the right place to find the next generation of comedians and funny people. So I'm trying to harness that energy and put it all into this. I think that's really important 
and, and a really interesting note, whether it's music or comedy or, you know, acting, it feels like talent discovery is happening on TikTok. It's like one big talent show. And I think that really putting this into a collective, I actually like it in this format. It's almost like the hype house, right? Where it's like, this is a collective of individuals and they're playing out as a cast on this TikTok channel. I think that's really cool. The last thing I'll say about it is something that Ty Verdes said when we interviewed him. The amazing thing about TikTok, because of the algorithm, if you bomb, no one really sees it. Mm-hmm. And it kind of doesn't impact your, your page. It's very different from YouTube. So if they have jokes that don't work, that's okay. It just matters that they have jokes that work and bits that work. TikTok will just help you find your content market fit. It's going to help you find what the audience cares about, what the platform cares about, and what you actually want to make. So check out Staple View if you want to check out our creator to watch. It's interesting to see the modern day reimagination of SNL. All right. That was our three, two, one this week, Colin. Samir. How did you feel? Like it was a three, two, one. I guess it doesn't really matter how we felt. <laughs> Curious how you guys felt. How did you feel about that? How did you like that format? Um, what did you think about the creators and the stories that we covered? Let us know. You can tweet at us. You can put that in the reviews of this podcast. Just don't impact our reviews too much. Even if you didn't like it, maybe give us five stars and give us some feedback. Now, also this week, stay tuned to our YouTube channel because we do have our creator merch review part four coming to the channel. And it is a crazy one. All right, that's it this week. Make sure to subscribe to the published press and we will see you next week. (laughs) 